Hello and welcome to Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Reese from Instinctive Partners, in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today, I'm joined in the Instinctive Studio by Rupert Gowley, Group Corporate Affairs Director at Booper. Rupert, hello. Great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Damien, hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. And also today, I'm joined by my Spin Unspun co-host from Instinctive Partners, Dulcie Keats-Miles, a director here at Instinctive and a specialist in consumer communications. Dulcie, great to see you too. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. Very excited to be with you today, Rupert, and have this chat. Likewise. Excellent. Great. Uh, Rupert, let's uh, let's kick off with a bit about you. Uh, just talk us through your, your career steps. So uh, I spent a number of years in a uh, public affairs consultancy, uh, which was part of a very large global law firm. So I spent about seven years in part of DLA Piper. So DLA is a very big global Anglo-US law firm. And interestingly, they set up a public affairs, reputation management, regulatory engagement consultancy. So classic public affairs, EU and UK focused and also quite international. But the unusual part was in law firm. And I think actually perhaps having the legal background perhaps helped me get in the door there. And then I had a great, I think it's seven years there. After that, I moved to what's now MHP Mischief. It's been through different names. It was MHP Mandate, part of Engine. Uh, I had about four years there. And then I've been a Booper ever since. That's about eight and a half years at Booper now, doing a range of different gigs. So that's so, it in a nutshell. So you, I've got to ask you this, the classic question. You've been agency and in-house. Which is better? Uh, <laughs> what, what, what do you like and There's what no do you better. hate about both? How are they different? They are different. They really are different. And I think it's really rewarding and important to have done both. There are things I absolutely miss from agency. There is a sense of collegiate culture. Everyone around you is doing the same sort of work. In-house, you are a bit more of an island. Um, you're often having to explain what you do and why and why you exist. What I love about in-house is you know, the commerciality of it and that you are much, much closer to the the nuts and bolts of operations, the business, what we do for customers. And there's just a depth of detail that you can get into, which I find fascinating. And that's really the reason I made the move. But I would say there's no good or bad, but they are different. So given your experience on, on, on both sides of that divide, as it were, what do you think makes a great head of corporate affairs or corporate communications, an in-house person like you? What do you need? So... I mean, this is a cliche, so forgive me. You need to really understand the commerciality of the organization and what it's there to do and how it serves its customers and why and what customers want. Simply put, perhaps everything else flows from that. So being very commercial and understanding the, the levers in the business that the business can pull to better serve customers, grow, introduce new products, change products, manage the headwinds. Because... A lot of corporate affairs and communications relate to that, but there's equally parts of it where you know you, you need to look at your toolbox and think, well, 
actually part of the corporate affairs toolbox here doesn't apply so much. This is less of a media thing. This is more of a regulatory thing. This is less of a political thing. It's more of a, a consumer thing. And you know, you look, you, you, you've got to have a toolbox. And I think being curious, I think, is a is another key attribute. So, I mean, I find businesses, organizations endlessly fascinating. They're complex. They're constantly evolving. Different bits evolve at different paces. So I think being curious about learning what's going on is, is, a, is a key attribute. And it's not being set in your, in your ways. I think, um, you know, many of us have come from a discipline of corporate affairs, if I started in public affairs, but you need to keep wanting to grow, to expand, because you'll find as you go on, your toolkit needs to expand and you need to keep being curious and sort of challenging yourself and being open to testing new things. So, yeah. Thick skin? Yeah, definitely have to have a thick skin. Diplomatic? Yes. And I think there's all these things. I mean, thick skin because sometimes what, you know, seems very, very important and what is blindingly obvious to you as a comms person, corporate affairs person, is not blindingly obvious or even seems that important or relevant to colleagues who you need to convince or influence. Some wonderful piece of thinking and creativity that you or the team have come up with might just be met with a meh. Um, so being thick-skinned, being diplomatic, because yeah, there is a truth under power cliche. I think a lot of it is helping the organization to resolve contradictions, um, things that don't quite stick together, um, working between different functions and business teams, you often a you know a go-between in a diplomatic way to sort of fix a fix a fix a challenge, fix a problem. Often in a, you know it starts in a communications challenge, but increasingly I think you often end up dealing with commercial strategic questions, where if you put it in the communications context, often that helps achieve a resolution. If you can't communicate it clearly, then it may be well be that the commercial problem or the business challenge isn't clearly understood by everybody. So to be a great leader, often you have to put yourself outside of your comfort zone or you might make mistakes along the way. What have been your most challenging moments, say, at Bupa, and what have you learned from them? There's a few examples I can think of. Um, I mean, one challenging episode was many years ago, I was responsible for communications, external and internal, for the UK domestic businesses. And we had a case of secret filming and it was, you know, it was pretty horrible. You know, I spent a large part of a month or so between the, the media outlet, the legal teams, the regulator, um, the staff in the facility, um, senior management within my division up to global, the board, colleagues across the world, managing a range of uh, understandably emotional reactions, not always sort of defending the company for the sake of it, but certainly trying to sort of put our hands up for the things that we absolutely had got wrong. There were some things that were absolutely unacceptable and we apologized for and had to, and had to get that right and, and done in a detailed way and also show what we were going to do about it. But also there was a whole suite of allegations that were put to us that we fundamentally believe were not true. So there was a bit of a sort of a investigation to go through Whilst you know more accusations would come in, whilst dealing with colleagues who were ashamed of what happened in their facility, while speaking directly to um, families affected, and that was quite an intense period. Particularly, you know, 
dealing with also the internal stakeholders where you know, nobody wants something like this to happen in an organization. And it was awful, but every stakeholder internally, externally has an opinion. And you're trying to also kind of segment everything, prioritize, manage transparent, open and detailed communications across all stakeholders in an emotionally charged way. There's an element of politics to it, but the regulator getting involved, absolutely you know, media interest. I think what we're trying to do is acknowledge and admit that bad things had happened in this instance, but what was being put to the company was that it was symptomatic of something more systemic or cultural, um, which we, we really didn't believe in. But it's quite difficult sometimes to you know, forge a path where you admit faults, put your hands up, but equally some things you are pushing back robustly on because yes. fundamentally we believe they weren't true. And I think it's important, isn't it, when you're in the midst of, of a crisis like that, that you as the person who's responsible for comms <clears throat> and reputation are able to maintain a sense of perspective, yeah. particularly for your internal stakeholders, as it were. Yeah. And perspective is something that can rapidly go out of the window. Absolutely. And, you know, it's emotionally And you're charged. not always thanked <laughs> for no. insisting on some perspective because people think you're not taking things seriously enough. But actually, to get the right response... You need perspective, don't you? Yeah, I think I remember, you, you know, different stakeholders would have different emotional reactions to whether it be allegations or facts as we, we un uncovered them, different um, reactions to, you know, extra interventions from whether it be the, the board, the, the, the investment community, the, the regulators. And part of it is absolutely being calm and taking a step back from lots of very emotionally charged conversations and you know, with you know, very senior leaders and just trying to get to calibrate the response in the right way, acknowledge what people were feeling, but often just bringing in a, an element of caution, um, a bit more time into the decision. Yes. And you've got to be able to, as I say, maintain that perspective because... The outside world are obviously making judgments of course. On, on, on you and the company and what you say and what you do. And you've got to always be very cognizant of how this looks. How does this look uh, is the big question. And of course, your external audience, the media, will always accuse you of being the spin doctor. Um, and I just, I just wanted to unpick this a little bit. Um, because this is a podcast called Spin Unspun. Uh, your role is the one that uh, the media will often uh, talk about as being the, the the spin doctor. But I don't think that really, as I think some of your answers uh, suggest, that doesn't really do this job justice, does it? Um, and no. and I mean, how, how do you how do you how do you describe to people what your role really entails? Simplistically, it's about communication, but it's much more than that. I mean, and I, there's a few words I, I, I sort of pop, that popped into my head as you were talking, Damien. I mean, part of it is a translation job. You are a sort of translator for the organization itself, uh, translating the outside world to it. And then the second word I'd, or second role I'd say is you're a guide. You're a guide for the organization through the outside world, but also actually so that the outside world stakeholders um, understand accurately what your organization is about, why it's doing certain things, why it's not doing certain things. I mean, companies like 
my, the one I work for, and many others are big, they're complex, they're evolving, they've got a range of services, they work in a range of geographies. It's not that easy to understand from, from the outside looking in on what you're, what you're doing and why all the time. And sometimes what you're doing might be the result of strategies at different episodes of history. Um, so you often have to explain the reason we do that is because of this, and it fits in because of that, and that's the context for that service. We're going to expand that because of this. Um, I think that's translation. Um, so I end up sort of having quite a lot of long conversations, which I don't think are spinning. I think they're more explaining. Explaining. In a kind I, of helpful You're absolutely way. right. I think head of comms or head of court affairs is as much about being head of understanding. Yeah. So that people understand what you do. Um, and that's the really important thing to get across. And on, this, on the subject of spin, it always makes me laugh, having spent 25 years as a journalist, the term, how do we spin this story, <laughs> is actually most commonly heard in a newsroom, yeah. not in a PR company or in the corporate affairs office of a company. No, I think for us, it's, you know, it's how do we explain this in the most clear way that our audiences, those audiences who are most relevant to us, customers, our employees, you know, regulators, financial, including the media, others, including the media, how would they actually understand it? And how would they understand why we're doing this at this moment? Um, and yes, there, there are, of course, you're looking to um, protect or build the organization's reputation and brand. So I can see why people might say, oh, that's spinning. You are being very careful and deliberate about your language and the, and the facts. But I would say that's because you're just trying to be clear um, rather than obfuscate or hide. It's, and I, I have that all the time in, in our, in, in, you know, with, our, with our team, um, our global team, but also looking at our teams around the world where there's often something being put to you by the media, which is partly true, um, but there are other things that are bundled up into that assertion or that story, which you need to unpick and explain. So I think it is translation and explanation because people sort of make assumptions about what, you, what you're about, what you're doing and why. And yeah. some of that might be true, but some of it is just based on uh, assumption, misunderstanding, history. Okay. Um, let's talk about healthcare, the mm -hmm. sector that uh, you are in. Bupa is obviously one of the best-known healthcare brands. Tell us how COVID and, and the pandemic changed the, the reputation and communications environment for you and, and the private healthcare providers. That's quite a big question. There's a lot in there. If I think back to the, the start of COVID, what we were very keen, this is speaking from behalf of Bupa, but also I think I know, you know some of our peers and partners in the private sector would say we were very keen to make sure that it was understood, our role was understood, what we, what we could do, what we couldn't do. Um, for us, it was, you know, one of the phrases we used a lot was about playing our part. We're, paying, we're simply trying to play our part in national and international responses to an unprecedented situation. And I think as long as we made that clear, and that could be you know, contributing to public sector services, contributing people, expertise, know-how, resources, whatever. And it varied by country. Um, you know, our makeup is different in every country we're in. Our balance of whether it's insurance or um, hospitals or clinics or dentists, it all varies. So we're very keen to just make sure that we were playing a part, but never over-promising. And I remember you know, so many 
questions put to us because people were hungry for information about the situation. We're a healthcare organization. It was a healthcare issue. So we'd be asked for you know, an expert opinion on vaccine development or COVID. And we're not a vaccine manufacturer. Um, you know, we have clinicians with clinical expertise, but we've been asked because all the time from different audiences, media, public, everybody really, what do you know more? Do you know more than um, than than we can find? And we had just to be really clear and honest about we don't know that. So I think being really, really clear and never overreaching, that was a kind of a big, a big piece. So that's kind of the immediate. In terms of kind of reputation coming through it, I think we I would say this, wouldn't I? I think we as Booper did a good job um, in terms of our reputation generally across all the markets. We look at the data, we do track these things, improved generally. I think we were seen as having played a useful role in how countries responded to COVID. I think in terms of reputation, I think one thing that COVID has done is increased people's public consumers' desire to know more about healthcare and their healthcare. And I said, and it's really their healthcare, it's that personalized piece. And then look for the healthcare system. And I mean healthcare system in its broadest sense to be there for them. And so I think what we're seeing is people across most of the countries, in fact, all the countries I think that we operate in are more curious, perhaps more questioning about healthcare services they get. And who, you know, and that's kind of agnostic from across public or private. So we, we get a, we've got a lot of curiosity and natural interest in what we do and more demanding customers' patients. So in some ways, there's a reputational opportunity if we get it right in terms of how we change our services and make sure they're accessible and available and personalized. But equally, you know, in some ways, the healthcare system, and I mean it as a whole, wasn't ready for COVID. So... Um, we can't have that again. I mean, there's probably a temptation amongst the media, for instance, to to say that the private sector had a good pandemic. Would you agree with that? Both from a business point of view, but also from a reputation point of view. I wouldn't use those words, but I think the private sector played its part. We did what we could do within the boundaries of what was possible with the resources available to us. You know, certainly if you take this country, focus on the UK, you have the NHS as a whole was amazing. There was great care and support. Um, the private sector did the bits that it could do, resources, extra beds, supporting services, people, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, to be honest, that's just, we played our part in the system. And I think that's similar in, you know, most of the countries that we look at. Um, you know, Spain's a big market for us. We did a lot with the Spanish system. You know, we got more hospitals in Spain, so... You know, we created extra capacity in the system, you know, field hospitals and things like that. Same in our Polish business, same in Chile. So the private sector, yes, well, if we're a representative of the private sector, we did well. I mean, commercially... Well, we, we, for instance, we see headlines that the, that the public have fallen out of love with the NHS. And if, if the NHS is seen to be doing badly, the corollary of that would, would, would I think, again, to the media, seem to be the, NA, uh, the private sector must therefore be doing well out of it. Yeah, I think... I mean, I mean that's, is that potentially quite a dangerous assumption for the private sector to allow... Yeah. ...to take hold? I think it's unhelpful and I think it's overly simplistic. And I think that's, you know, that characterises the public-private debate in 
in the UK, but also I think in, in many other countries. Um, in this country, you know, the private sector is simply is actually a relatively small part of the system. If the NHS is about, I don't know, 80% of expenditure in the country. So the NHS is unusual compared to other countries. I think it is dangerous because it implies one is good and one is one is bad. Um, I would say the systems have coexisted forever. Well, not forever, sorry, since, you know, 1948. And the the relationship between two ebbs and flows, it is quite you know, symbiotic. Both have the same challenges. So staffing problems in the NHS are shared by the private sector. There aren't enough healthcare workers, full stop. Many doctors and people I know socially as well, you know, who are consultants, they have mixed practices, deliberately so. It is never as simplistic. It's never as binary. And in you know, many ways, the private sector is there to provide resources, capacity to the NHS. It can be a very simplistic and ideologically driven um, debate. I just don't think that's very helpful or, or very genuine and transparent to people. Um, and it's also nothing new. It means the systems have worked together for a very long time. I think that people don't understand. And I think the private sector possibly is being at fault for this. I mean, I can think of moments perhaps when the private sector should have been a little, just a little bit more forthcoming about its role and what it was trying to do and what it wasn't trying to do. It's every, for every company to make its own decision. Do you think people, like if you look at the difference between physical health and mental health, and you know, it's very much of my opinion anyway, um, that your mental health should be viewed as an individual in the same way that you do your physical health. Do you as a business look at it in that way or do you feel like it is the kind of... It's sort of over there. It's over there somewhere. Yeah. Historically, perhaps it was looked at as something over there. But I think in recent years, certainly in the UK, and I've seen it start to evolve in other, other markets, it is seen as being on a par with physical health. And and I, I'm not a clinician, <laughs> but I, I work around many. Um, you know, as I said, there are lots of, you know, in interconnected, it's interconnected. Physical health, mental health, huge amount of um, you know uh, shared uh, uh, links between the two. I think we, you know, as a company, we're very comfortable talking about it. And one of the nice things actually about the organisation, I think it, we are very good at and comfortable talking about it internally. It's a very normal conversation in the company with your team, with people, and I really like that. I really welcome that. Um, I can remember, you know, perhaps earlier parts of my career. It wasn't something you talked about at work. Now, certainly, we absolutely do. And I think when we, but when we talk externally, I think we're really, really comfortable talking about it. And I think and genuine and authentic. And I've seen that start to change in other parts of our world. We've got a very big business in Australia. I've certainly see, started seeing that similar dynamic to what happened in the UK in terms of, sort of societal awareness. That's really, really shifted. Spain as well, in different ways, with their own, you know, different sort of. Uh, linguistic, perhaps cultural references to it, but yeah, it's definitely a not just a British thing. But and Alistair Campbell has done yes, a lot he has. Uh, in I, this field. He's written some fantastic books yeah. on this, and I think people like him, uh, and there are others who've just been sort of um, forerunners. This debate, I think, have done a lot, a huge amount of good. Just opening up. Let me ask you about the. Uh, let me ask you about the media. Yep. Um, I spent a long time as a journalist. Uh, I've spent ten years as a as a as an advisor, so I've I've seen it from both sides. Uh, I'm really interested in your view as to how important the mainstream media, particularly the mainstream media, is to Booper and what you're trying to achieve, and and how that 
relationship, if you like, is is evolving. Mm-hmm. It's and a really good question. Is, is, is it as important? It depends where. Um, I think it can be very important, but it's not always the be-all and end-all. When I'm thinking from a corporate communications point of view about trying to be understood or to communicate something that we're doing or why something we're, you know, we're thinking, you know, you talk, people talk about like, owned content a lot. So we will equally look at what's the best route for getting this message or piece of communication out to whichever audience we're trying to prioritize. So it isn't always the media or the media could be part of it. And I would look at, well, media is a channel um, along with other channels. It does vary by country. So I think, you know, I, I, I said Australia is one of our biggest businesses. I think as a brand, we're very prominent in the media in Australia, less so in the UK, I think. We're known, but we're, you know, we're not quite as prominent. So it's not quite as it was, perhaps. I think that's one of the misconceptions about what we do, certainly internally. People go, oh, you deal with the media. And I say, well, partly, sometimes, but we, we deal with social media, digital. Um, we deal directly uh, with consumer communications. We deal directly with different audiences. So, yeah, I think it's media on a selective basis, and you have to be quite careful. And gone are the days, I think, of just you know, press releases, spamming, you know, trying to get feel the weight of coverage. That helps, but um, I think it's a different dynamic now. Which which routes do you generally find the most effective? Uh, if you're trying to reach, say, uh, a consumer audience versus a a business audience, so it depends. I mean, yes, it can always. be own channels, <laughs> social media, and we're you know we are, and this is from a global perspective. I think we're good on some social media channels and not so good on others, and we've got a long way to go. And we're trying to go where our audiences are. You know, we're having some interesting conversations around TikTok. We haven't quite got there as a corporate channel yet, although we do use it for recruitment. Um, Very successfully, I would imagine. It's really good. I mean, it's early days, but we use it. So there's a constantly changing conversation about where where are our audiences. It could be media. If it's just kind of often a customer place, you might look at local media more, regional. Certainly in the UK, you might look at radio. So it's not always the traditional, you go to a broadsheet or you go to a big title because that's where your audiences are. You have to think more broadly. You know, media, national media is part of the toolkit. It could be, you know, could be broadcast more. Um, so I think you just have to be a bit more broad-minded and think about the audiences in a more granular way than ever before. How often, as a business, do you actually look at who your audience is and how best to reach them? Probably not enough, if I'm honest. And I think, given what I just said <laughs> about the pace of change in some channels, um, you get new platforms coming. I try to keep up to date, but I am lucky enough. I've got some brilliant people around me who know far more and talk to me about new platforms. I'm like, okay, tell me about that. So I think we need to do more of that and understand more where our audiences are spending their time in terms of where they're getting their information from. So, you know, what I mean by that is, are they still on Facebook or has everyone left Facebook? Are they still on Twitter? Not sure. And you've got um, the cultural nuances of different countries as well. well absolutely. And that, that really, and, you know, that changes a lot. And there are, and that's a very real thing. So, again, my role's at the Global HQ. We use certain social media channels, but we also know that some of those are heavily followed 
in one market and not. There's some real difference between LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, by country, just where people go, and what, where they expect a company to be communicating and, and not as well. And it, it really varies. So, and I don't think we've got that right yet. We need to do a lot more work at unpicking that and getting our channels right. So that's a big job. Yeah, I wouldn't pretend we've got that right yet, but there's a lot of work to do. The other thing that can go wrong in companies is also you can neglect some audiences. You make these changes and you see you've got to make sure your segmentation is right. And some audiences might still be wanting to, exactly. to receive information or engage with you through that channel that you might think, well... Is it redundant? Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, yeah, you can get that wrong really badly. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so just be super careful. So I think all of that highlights the obviously the fragmented nature yes. of uh, audiences and and delivery channels or how you communicate with them um and it once again shows how complex the role is that you fulfill um added on to that level of complexity of course is uh, the the level of expectation on you as a company in terms mm-hmm. of your corporate responsibility um and i just wanted to ask you about the uh good old chestnut of ESG, mm. uh, something that I think the media is probably getting more and more sceptical yes. about. Um, are you getting it right? I mean, I would have thought healthcare ought to be quite a positive ESG story if you get it right. How, how are you approaching it and do you think you're getting it right? We've done a lot of work on this in the last year and a half about looking at what is our, as a company, what is our role in sustainability, broader ESG, and we've revamped our strategic approach. And I think one of the challenges for an organization is trying to find your your useful and differentiated place in this. Now, there's, there's many things you, you simply have to do and get that right. So you know, net zero commitments, I think, well, we've made ours, they're very challenging. We're at the absolute start of implementing that. I think that's almost, um, that's a hygiene factor. There's certain things around um, on the social side, well, they're either regulation or legislation now, or soon will be, depending on which country, just got to get that right. So what we're trying to do is find a space that's sort of useful. And when I mean useful, I mean useful in societal terms, um, in line with our purpose. And for us, we're a healthcare company, so what's the place for us? Well, we're looking at the connection between human health and environmental health. That whole argument of if a, an unhealthy planet you know, is going you know, to have knock-on impacts to, to healthy people or unhealthy people. You know, you, you know, the simple examples being forest fires, drought, might you know, lead to respiratory. Um, there might be um, other illness, new illnesses or illnesses that become more prevalent because of climate change. So for us, it's a focus on research and um, awareness in a space that we feel is a bit underserved, that people don't talk about the connection between the two. People talk about the environmental piece, people talk about human health. It's rare for them to come together. So that is what what we can do. I mean, one of the things we're also we're focusing on is it's unfortunate that actually, you know, healthcare, which is a, a social good, I would say, it actually is quite carbon intensive as a sector. So healthcare needs to look at itself. And that's one thing we're starting to do with our, all of our partners and look at ways of delivering healthcare in a obviously clinically sound way, but in an environmentally sound way. That could be across production, 
um, use of yeah, use of aerosol gases in 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 healthcare. There's a huge number of things, and our clinical team are going to be researching a lot of this. And that's so for us, knowledge and insight, and then collaboration to make a positive impact in those areas is where we think is useful for us. So I guess a better place to be than a lot of others are uh, where they're being targeted. But um, looking at, you know, we're just talking about social media and, and looking at kind of societal and political issues that are going on in the world. How, what do you think of businesses getting involved in conversations such as Roe versus Wade or Black Lives Matter? Um, and, you know, have you ever had conversations internally where people have said, we should get involved in that? And you're like, absolutely not. Um, or the other way around and kind of where do you feel the role of the brand plays? That's a really good question. And I think the answer, the short answer is those conversations are happening not quite all the time, but with rapidly increasing frequency, um, particularly in the last um, year, year to year and a half. And I, I put my hands up on this. I think we, don't, we haven't quite got it right on every single issue. We do have those debates and we have very live debates about what is our place? What's our standing? It's the word I often use. Do we have standing to actually express an opinion on this, yeah. this issue? And we all have different views. And I think our role in corporate affairs is to bring those views together, forge a way through, go through risks, opportunities, pitfalls, um, benefits, but also work through whether we actually have a clear opinion. And in some cases, we've gone through an exercise very quickly and come to the conclusion that, well, actually, if asked, we have an opinion on, on X and Y, but we're not. Why would we push that out? And who wants to know? And I think companies can get that wrong. You can push out an opinion and, you know, I see it sometimes and go, well, who wants to know? And, you know, that's a terrible thing. If you're pushing something out which says nothing, really. I have seen that where companies clearly feel obliged to have an opinion on on an issue and communicate it externally. I think it's different. I think there can be a difference between internal and external. I think for us, the debate is very live internally. Um, we have, a, you know, like most organisations, we have a, an internal communications platform which is very democratised. Anyone can post, um, and you get, you know, really, you get some punchy questions. It's really good. Um, you get some punchy questions on why are we doing that, or we've said that. That's great, but why, why not X, Y, Z? And then the challenge is, do we need to? Do we then have opinions on 50, 50 60 issues? I haven't quite landed this myself. I think you know we need to have. Be ready uh, on more, on a broader range of issues to have an opinion and give an opinion. Um, I think a lot of this is internally driven, and I can see this becoming you know a bigger and bigger issue. And it's really interesting to watch. But I have seen it you know spark some lively debate internally. We were quite vocal on the Russian invasion of Ukraine around stopping business and why, and that was. I think a good thing. I think we got that right. I think it's the right thing to do. But then that, spiked, that sort of sparked a series of other internal conversations about, well, if, if that, then why not that? Yeah. And in a multinational, that's really complicated sometimes. And you know, we've grown you know, slowly over the years and we have businesses in some, in some countries with different laws, different yeah. cultures. And it's you have a very London-centric view. I think that's really right. Pose, yeah. I think which often, is a big risk. and I, I'm really conscious of that myself. That you read something, it can be quite Anglo-Saxon if I use that term, but it's you know London-centric or US-centric. And I think what I find very helpful, and I had a recent example of this, is just calibrate with your colleagues around the world. I remember talking about one issue with a colleague who was um, in Spain, 
and another colleague in Saudi Arabia, another colleague who was in, in the Far East. And we all actually had different takes on what was the place of the company to have to express an opinion on, on this issue. And would our stakeholders thank us for it, want to hear it, or would they think that's a strange thing or an odd thing for us to do? And we all had different views. And that was quite a useful reality check because I think sitting where we are, sit in London, I tend to read English-speaking media a lot, you can be driven to one place, which for a multinational, truly global company, might not actually be that authentic uh, and, fr- and is fraught with difficulty. Of course, the more topics you talk about, the greater risk ultimately you're taking, I guess, with your with your with your reputation. And of course, you may end up treading on the toes of our friends in politics. Yes. <clears throat> and healthcare yes. is obviously a very political yes. issue wherever you go uh, globally. Um, how do you feel companies and organisations should engage with policy without getting dragged into politics? If you see what I mean, and I, yeah, I do. do. Do politics and business mix? Um, in your experience, not always easily, and I think there are perhaps misperceptions and also suspicions between the two around you know, the rationale for entering into the conversation. The basic, what are you trying to get from the conversation? I, I think on the first part of your question around how to engage, I think you have to do it utmost transparency and as a business and make sure your house is in order. So we see plenty of examples of organizations who advocate for a position on an issue, but actually they're a part, they're a part of an industry group that has a slightly different position. There's a lot of that coming out of the US. So you've really got to make sure your house is in order because as soon as you, re- you enter that political space, you are opening yourself up for attack or at least potential of it. So you just make, make sure you're absolutely clean. And, but also your, that your reasons for entering into that, that policy debate are authentic and understandable. You know, if you've got a business, clear customer um, issue, absolutely. If you've got a clear sort of, you know, a regulatory issue, absolutely. If it's a commercial issue, um, but sometimes, you know, if it's just to voice an opinion, I think it goes back to my previous answer about the, you've got to be careful on what. But I do think that business and politics in simple terms don't always understand each other. I think a lot of business people are very sort of reticent of, about Politics. I think, particularly over recent years, when politics has perhaps been a bit more, uh, how do I put it, less stable. I think then you know, business people don't like instability. Then I think it's easier to just sort of not engage. And I think with politicians, then it can be a bit of a caricature of what business is there for and asking for. You know, you're just there to you know for self-interest. Clearly, businesses do act commercially, but also they are also trying to act in line with their, dare I say, it, purpose. I think more engagement is better than than less, but I think it feels quite fraught in recent years. And I think that's true across multiple countries, not just a UK thing. In your experience then, which which companies do you think have got comms and reputation right? Um, Who are you most impressed by? Come on, tell us. <laughs> there are a few companies I look at and have looked at consistently around the world. I think they do a good job of appearing competent and they're good at always what they good. do, <laughs> but they also appear to have good character. They show the social impact of what they do. So I'll put people like I- Ikea there, I think can be pretty good. One of the areas I think has been really interesting in coming out of COVID is some pharma companies, I stress some, have done a really good job at 
addressing and changing perceptions around that industry because of the way they responded to the pandemic and what they achieved was amazing, just pure science of it. But I think those companies have had to be much more in the spotlight and demystify what they do because it was it was the route out of the pandemic um, in a way that and I've worked with the pharma industry in the past back in agency days where as an industry, it didn't often want to be in in the headlines. And there were some you know, reputational reasons for that and things that, had, you know, legal regulatory from the past. I think it has done, as a generalization, a good job at sort of demystifying the process of what it does and the, and the benefit it brings as an organization. Now, it helps that you know, scientists did amazing things very quickly. You know, I'd say that's been an interesting time for them. Uh, you seem, the way you talk about it, very, very happy in your role at Bupa. Of course. Um, absolutely. Um, but if, for whatever reason, um, you were to move on, what would be your dream role? And the flip side of that, what would be the worst role ever? <laughs> um, so I have two answers on the dream role. There's the one which has been me, the professional corporate affairs person. So doing a similar job in a, in a, large, another sen- a large... The sensible answer. Yeah, the sensible <laughs> answer. The, the, the answer that might go some way towards paying the mortgage. Um, doing something similar in another large, complex organization with a rich range of challenging issues, that would be... Yeah, that's fun. Um, it's my idea of fun anyway. The second answer, which is the... I, I've always said I quite like to be a part of Ranger. I quite like the I quite like the out, I quite like the outdoors. Um, I like I'm quite interested in wildlife and the environment and and but it, but being a park ranger um, doesn't won't pay won't even begin to pay the mortgage. Or well, you well, you'd, you'd live in a little hut hut or, or, or log, ca- log cabin. I'd love it. Oh, dreamy! And the worst job ever. Any sort of job really where you've got no autonomy and you're not empowered to actually use your skills. Really, I think so. If you're simply you know, a post box for communication, then you might as well just be automated. Sorry. So, so I think, I think you know, anything where you don't, you know, you, your expertise isn't really valued, needed, you're not empowered to, then I think that's not very, I, I would struggle to, you know. To enjoy to that. To enjoy <laughs> that. Fair enough. And then thinking about all the recent graduates that might be coming into the industry or people who've just finished their A-levels, um, what advice would you give them coming into the industry to be able to, you know, set forth on the right foot? I think be curious. And what I mean by that is ask questions, give your opinion, speak up, challenge things you see around you, you know, whether that's in a team meeting or just in, you know, if you look at hierarchy of organisations, they don't know all the answers. They might just know how to get things done or organised or drive things forward, but they might not have the best ideas. So I think speak up. And I'm, you know, I love people around me who say, well, why don't you do that? Or why do we do that? Or people who put their hand up and say, I want to have a go at. So that, that's, I know those are cliches, but being curious and open to doing new things. Rupert, thanks so much Thank for you. joining us today and sharing your thoughts. You've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with myself, Damien Reese, and my co-host today, Dulcie Keats-Miles. Dulcie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Our guest today has been Rupert Gowley, Group Corporate Affairs Director at Bupa. Join us again for our next episode of Spin Unspun. Details at instinctive.com. 
Find us on social media, on the usual channels. And if you'd like to get in touch about Spin Unspun, just drop me a line, damien.reese at instinctive.com. 